0: Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or an educational institution that has an intracampus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.
1: Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're gonna to talk about a real potpourri of activities and issues that are to people in the United States and around the world. My guest today is Katrina Vandenhoevel. Katrina Vandenhoevel is the publisher part owner and former editor of the progressive magazine, The Nation. She is often a commentator on political television programs, a guest columnist for The Washington Post, and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, welcome to today's
0: Global Connections program. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate, you. You, appreciate you being with me today. It's great to be, great to be with you. Thank you. We, we have
1: a wide <coughs> range of topics, and uh, let's just jump in with one that's getting a lot of play lately, and that is democracy. The United States has been somewhat of a beacon for democracy, for democratic governments around the world, democratic societies. We helped set up the uh, Democracy Fund at the United Nations. We've done a variety of things, but lately it seems that our democracy has been under attack for many, many reasons. How, how do you perceive this whole situation, especially in light of the January 6th insurgency that took place at the United States Capitol?
0: Uh, Bill, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a big, broad, ramifying, difficult topic. Um, you know, this is a, a extraordinary country. Uh, I take uh, strength from the Four Freedoms, Franklin Roosevelt. I take strength from the United Nations, which he helped found, Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, I think these are foundational documents that have been under attack, under siege in our country uh, in, in the last decades, most sharply under Donald Trump. He has, I think, foregrounded, sharpened, illuminated, exposed the weaknesses in our democracy. These are institutions built, for example, the Senate or the Electoral College formed at a different time in our country, which seem to cement minority rule, which is to be respected, but in ways that are contradictory with true democracy. So I think the hearings, we don't know where they will go, what the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland, the attorney general will do. But I think whatever happens, it's important that these be held, not simply to hold Trump and his minions accountable. But when you excavate the past and you bring to bear a record of history, it is a warning for the future. It is a guide primer for the future. I'm a believer, by the way, just Jamie Raskin, who your viewers may well know, who has written for the nation for decades. His father was on our editorial board. Uh, In the hours after the insurrection started, I was in touch with him because our esteemed uh, editorial board member, Eric Foner, a uh, historian of reconstruction of the Civil War said, what about article three of the 14th amendment, which will never permit anyone involved with insurrection or rebellion to hold office in this country again. So just briefly, I think that may be something to consider uh, in order to make sure that Donald Trump who is more than Trump, it's Trumpism. But if Donald Trump runs again, which is likely, maybe that's something to think about.
1: It is It is very straightforward and it's a matter of someone carrying it out in the federal government. But it, we talk about the attack on democracy in the United States. This is really going on worldwide, is it not? We look at Urban in Hungary, we look at Marie Le Pen in France, we look at Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. There is an undercurrent of actually I don't know if you'd call it autocrats or fascists or whatever, who are trying to impose their particular will on various societies and really weaken or eliminate many of the democratic institutions. This, this is a worldwide phenomenon, is it not?
0: It is. And, you know, you didn't mention uh, Duterte in, uh, oh, in the Philippines. The Philippines. Right. Uh, I think you didn't mention Putin, who, of course.
1: Right. Uh, How can we forget?
0: And, Vladimir. and Lukashenko. Uh, but I would also cite, you know, a governor of one of the states or a member of a state legislature in this country who is ready to end what to me is one of the most important measures of a democratic society, which is the peaceful transition of power. Uh, so we have our own, uh, I would call them different levels of neo-fascists, of uh, anti-democratic forces. You saw it again during the insurrection where you had an outer circle of people in the streets, people who'd come from all over the country, those groups like the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers. And then you had the inner circle, those around Trump like Roger Stone, also from the Watergate era, Giuliani remembered America's mayor, but that circle holed up at the Willard Hotel. And then you had the White House with Trump unwilling to take measures. I, you know, I go, I think, Bill, it's part of um, a cycle. Arthur Schlesinger used to talk about cycles of history. I really do think that the old order of the liberal order has been sadly discredited in ways among ordinary people. And I think people are feeling untethered. Certainly the COVID pandemic, the job issues, the inequality, these are all issues that are baked into our system that need more attention, more resolution. But there are reasons that around the world you see, for example, in France. Remember the yellow vests? I mean, these—you know—some just a yellow vest year a year ago was quoted saying, "You know, Macron and his team want to, you know, end the perils of climate change. Well, I want to make it through the end of the week." So there are these distinctions you can do, I mean, you could do both, but um, I do think there's really deep issues that have prompted this uh, reawakening of neo-fascism, of soft authoritarianism, of autocracy. And that I will say one last thing, the nation founded in 1865 by abolitionists committed to ending slavery has been around for so long that for example, we were opposed to banning child labor I'm, you know, wrong, wrong things. But the steady theme through our history has been the belief that military misadventure abroad does not permit true democracy at home. This whole
1: demise or attempted demise of democracy in the United States and elsewhere also carries over not just to our voting rights in this country or to the courts and that type of thing, but it also carries over into the foreign policy area. Is, are we not looking at another approach or a different approach to dealing with foreign policy challenges? Are we are we getting away from the art of diplomacy and moving into more of a militaristic approach as far as dealing with climate change, with dealing with pandemics and other problems that are really worldwide? It's not just going to affect this country, but- These are worldwide problems. Changing.
0: These are global problems. Bill, and I will tell you, and I think we both have a shared affection for different reasons. My father was a deputy representative at the UN in Geneva, and then the deputy in the United States and felt the UN really represented, even with its difficulties, Mm -hmm. uh, an institution that truly tried to end the scourge of war and its agencies, which too many don't know about, ILO, WHO, World Health Organization. These are agencies that are important. And by the way, Uh, Just the other day, the UN played an important role, Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General, in negotiating between Ukraine, Russia, with the assistance of Turkey, a grain arrangement that will help with the food insecurity racking the globe. Um, I always hope, and I was an admirer and spent many years working, reporting from Moscow, particularly 1985 to 1991, when Gorbachev Mikhail Gorbachev became the leader. He gave a speech at the United Nations Bill, I believe it was 87, which is one of the visionary speeches of our time, a belief in human security, something statesmen like Olaf Palma, Willy Brandt, others always believed. And I thought with the pandemic, there would be an understanding that military weapons are not gonna tackle the pandemic, nor will they tackle uh, nuclear proliferation or hunger or global poverty. Uh, Yes, there's a need for security, but how you achieve that can be done through engagement, through restraint, through diplomacy, and not only through what I fear has been privileged as the way of dealing with security issues at this moment is military. There is more of a militarization of mindset than uh, I had hoped coming out of Cold War, Cold War. Now, of course, it takes two to tango, I think, as Reagan said uh, to Gorbachev. And Putin invaded in a barbaric, brutal, cruel, illegal invasion of Ukraine. And uh, that has to be acknowledged first, though, in also trying to understand, not justify, you do need to look at NATO expansion, the history and context of U.S.-Russian relations over these last 10 or more years. I'm glad you
1: mentioned Ukraine because that's a good segue right into that area. You're right as far as NATO had been expanding, but which it said it was not going to do. If we go back to the George Herbert Walker Bush administration said that NATO would not threaten the former USSR, now Russia, but it did pick up countries along the way I'm curious, though, with this whole situation, it looked as though to me, and I again, I'm way on the outside, but it looked as though that Ukraine was not going to become a, a member of NATO for many reasons. But why do you think that Putin launched this invasion? Do you, do you not think he could have just taken the Donbas region if he'd wanted to? I know they've been fighting a war, a, 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 literally a protracted war there for eight years. They but have, yeah. good. Hit, could, they have, could he have not done this? in a less belligerent, uh, less destructive way. And I'm not arguing for him. There's no
0: question. (laughs) Those who who follow and have followed Russia, U.S.-Russian relations for decades, I'm talking about someone like Ambassador Jack Matlock, who was Reagan's ambassador to the USSR, Anatole Levin, who's at the Quincy Institute. They were in shock, as were many others, for at least 24, 46, 40. what, what what led Russia to take this step? Uh, what led Putin to take this step? And many believe it was one of the great strategic blunders You know, since 1905. Uh, it is still unclear, we are still learning as horrific developments unfold. Um, but the NATO piece, some have tried to deny that that was important. I don't think there's any question the NATO expansion, and as you described it, Bill, you're right, but it was an agreement when Germany reunified, this statement was not one inch eastward. And under George W. Bush, there was a real kind of provocative series of inviting others to come. The sadness is, I do think there was an offer on, in, there was something on offer prior to the invasion, the Russian invasion, in which there were Minsk Accords and Normandy Accords, At the heart of all of those accords bill was that NATO, that Ukraine remained neutral and not join NATO. And even by NATO's own standards, Ukraine couldn't join NATO. Its borders are still contested, the economy levels they would have had to reach. So there's a terrible kind of jujitsu that could have been dealt with that was not. And I will say one last thing. I think Yeltsin, the 90s, the looting of Russia, but there was you know getting along with the west at the height of the iraq war putin goes to the munich security conference a very important conference mccain lieberman merkel sitting in the front row and says you know this is no longer a unipolar world russia is back and i think in that statement there was a sense of uh that triumphalism after the collapse of the soviet union was shattered and america kind of its leaders, its establishment sort of thought, uh uh-oh, you know, so that's part of the landscape into which the uh, invasion, which is not to be justified, but could be understood, a sense of having been backed into a corner for so long and Ukraine being the final, final tipping point. And and I say that in generalities because there had been a war, Bill, you're right, 15,000... Some 15,000 had been killed in the ukraine Donbas war.
1: Yes. And I was one of those people. You mentioned some of the other folks who were looking at this from afar. It was absolutely shocked. I was convinced that Putin would not invade. He said he was just lining his troops up for defensive purposes in Belarus, that type of thing. And apparently the only one who was really on target on this was Joe Biden, who kept saying for weeks that he had intelligence that Putin was going to invade, invade, and he did. And we were proven wrong, except for him, I guess. Well, you're watching Global Connections television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We would invite our viewers to go to our website at www globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today we're talking with Katrina Vanden Heuvel about a wide range of issues that are important to Americans and to people worldwide. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is the publisher, part owner, and former editor of the progressive magazine, The Nation. Katrina, we were talking about, what well, we're talking about democracy in the United States and around the world, we're talking about the Ukrainian situation. I uh, just uh, to wrap up on Ukraine, how do you think this is going to end? Do you think it'll be a stalemate uh, that uh, Russia will keep that eastern part without going much further? Maybe that—that that so, is
0: the question, Bill. How will it end? How will it end? And what does quote success look like? Exactly, there, there are different scenarios. The most likely, tragically, as we talk, I would have to say, is a slog, just an ongoing block by block. Village by village slog, partly because I we, partly because the escalation of the shipping of weapons. That may not continue because I don't see the United States or Europe, certainly not you know Asia, sending more weapons than we have. There are uh, shipments of these long range. I think uh, HIMARS rockets, but so if the weapons keep flowing in and there are people who feel. You know fanatically in favor of that you could continue seeing this uh attrition war of attrition there would be a lull in the winter um but the other possibility bill is that there be some renewed diplomacy i mentioned the minsk accords prior to the war the normandy accords france and germany the un were very involved uh it's hard to see right now partly because for various reasons, the Biden administration has really uh, shunted aside diplomacy, so as to kind of cement in many people's minds the wrong assumption that diplomacy in and negotiations are almost capitulation or appeasement. They're not. You negotiate with enemies. You negotiate with adversaries. You don't necessarily negotiate with friends. So I'm I'm concerned that. Um, the war will go on, and uh, there's the longer it escalates, Bill, the danger of nukes, nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons threatened by Russia, uh, then countered by the United States. We have special ops people, according to The New York Times, inside Ukraine, training. Uh, so there's a whole set of variables that could be accidents. But the hope is a diplomatic resolution, a ceasefire, um, Security for Ukraine through a kind of second tier NATO, but autonomy, independence, sovereignty for Ukraine. Um, Then the reconstruction bill, I'll stop. I mean, if the longer the war goes on and you know how countries are with reconstruction, I mean, we ponied up the international community, 6.5 billion for Afghanistan. I think we've barely managed to see at these donor conferences, anything crossing three to five billion. Mm-hmm. So I think the sooner the war ends, the impo- not only is it important for Europe, but as, as you can see around the world, the implications are just dire. Food security, climate, not only has been put on hold, but has been pushed back in terms of progress. So it's, um, it's a, it's a time, it seems for me also, to rebuild our country, not to be isolationist, but to rebuild this country and allow others to rebuild theirs with resources that might be freed if we didn't have these endless.
1: That, that is certainly a good point. And you mentioned earlier about the militarization of this country. Now, we're all in agreement. We need a strong defense. I don't think we'll find anybody who would disagree with that, even perhaps Pacifists might even agree with that. I can't speak for them. But we do have an unbelievably huge military industrial complex in this country. We're down to about our last two minutes. But how do you view the role of the military industrial complex and this burgeoning budget? Uh, A lot of people say a bloated budget. It's now and as you, yeah, bloated forty billion dollars.
0: Bernie Sanders and uh, Rand Paul used to sponsor and audit the Pentagon every year. It's not a bad idea. They're free. F- bill,
1: it's a great idea.
0: <laughs> we have a military that is twelve times the size. I think of the next ten countries combined. We are. We have so much military funding. Here's the the problem: is the mindset that the and and the lobby. Someone calls it Mickey Mat now, not just military industrial complex, like internet, congressional, as Eisenhower had wanted to add. Um, so you have, a, you have a lobby, which is very serious. They're making out like bandits. There are four companies now, I think, because it's so consolidated. The problem is in this country, first of all, inside Congress, there's a big lobby for the weapons makers, but you need to also offer people jobs. Because this country was developed as a kind of Keynesian military country with a lot of bases and a lot of manufacturers. And it's like the coal industry. And there's a group called Just Transition, which people should look up, which is about how more productive investments in education and healthcare would be if those jobs could be transferred. No one's talking about shutting down the military. I mean, we have so much military spending and you wanna take care of veterans. But the more wars we have, Bill, the more deployments people go into, the more wounded, maimed, PTSD veterans we have. So I think we need to take a hard look at resolving the crises of our times in non-military ways without failing to understand that there are times when one needs to use a military.
1: Exactly. And we've got to focus upon diplomacy more so than just sending troops overseas. And there are, there are Republicans and Democrats and independents alike who believe that that's the way to go at it, that we really- We didn't
0: even talk <laughs> all about Iran, or I have to say Cuba. I think the Obama administration yes. really did some good work in both of those areas. For domestic political factors, Cuba, again, facing a lot of sanctions and COVID impacts, but Iran was an important deal. And if as that breaks apart, The ramifications are also a failure of diplomacy, a failure of negotiation that I do believe would make us more secure.
1: Yeah, in our last thirty seconds, Trump broke the deal. It was a mistake to do that. It's really made the world a much more unstable place. Does Biden not have a responsibility though to get back into that deal as quickly as possible?
0: I think so. I really and it was on offer. It's not as if he had to really pulled together the team that Obama did and the energy, it was there to build up and put back in place. It and found- I do think, yeah, so I, 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 I do think the focus, we didn't even talk about China, but the idea of a new kind of confrontation with Russia and China, in my mind is folly for the future of our country. I don't know what is animating as much of the foreign policy, but I do know that diplomacy needs to be revived. It certainly
1: does. and The last thing we need is another Cold War so we can spend trillions of dollars more for unwanted, unnecessary armaments that will That's do cool. nobody any good. And the U.S. Government Accountability Office, for years, used to review the, the Pentagon's budget. And they said... Wait, hey, oh, so, so much. yeah. It was twenty to twenty-five cents on the dollar was wow. missing, wasted or defrauded. So we could reduce the Pentagon's budget probably by one hundred fifty. You could not,
0: you have someone on Bill Hartung. Bill Hartung's a terrific analyst of the budget military. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, but he would tell you you could reduce it by seventy min- percent, easy, and wow. you, you really and be secure and also take care of veterans.
1: Yeah, well, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, we've solved the problems of today. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you, Bill. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.